The following message is from Ridgewood Church in Greer, South Carolina. For more information, visit RidgewoodGreer.com. So this is a little bit different than what you were probably expecting to find here. We had some technical difficulties, and so we did not get the sermon recorded. So what I'm going to do is I have made a transcript of my uh, notes from Sunday. I'm going to do my best to just reproduce what I taught on Sunday. You can also read this at our, at our website, ridgewoodgreer.com, in our teaching section. Um, I wanted to go ahead and just record this for any folks that may have missed serving in kids or who had sick children or whatever it might be. So I hope this is helpful and I hope it's a blessing to you. And again, recognizing this is not ideal. In 1520, a German theologian named Martin Luther wrote a little booklet called The Freedom of the Christian, asking and answering this question, what does freedom mean for a Christian? What are we free from and what are we free to do as Christians? The argument of the booklet can be summarized in this paradox. Luther writes, a Christian is a free lord of everything and subject to no one. A Christian also is a willing servant of everything and subject to everyone. We are freed by forgiveness of Jesus, not bound to one's judgment of us. We are freely pardoned in Christ, made sons and daughters of the King over all nations. We share in Christ's inheritance. This is a free gift, and it's this amazing gift of grace. Paul writes in Romans chapter 8, Who can bring a charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who can condemn us? I mean, who has anything to say to that? This is the supremacy of Jesus and the glory of his gospel, that his blood alone makes us right with God, and there's nothing and no one that can undo that. We are utterly free. But Luther also says, we're bound. We are bound to our neighbors. We're servants. Notice there's a key adjective here in Luther's little booklet. He says that we are willingly servants of everything and subject to everyone. Though free, I choose, not under compulsion, but from love, I choose to obligate myself to my brothers, sisters, and neighbors. Luther rooted this teaching in the life of Jesus. Just as Jesus, the only Son of God, eternally begotten of the Father, God from God, light from light, true God from true God, begotten not made, of one being with the Father, through him all things were made, just as he willingly owned our cause, though he was the freest of all beings, so we willingly bear the burden of our neighbor. It's really good, isn't it? I'm going to find that to be incredibly beautiful and compelling. Now, the book of Acts is the story of the earliest Christians, starting with the apostles being commissioned and empowered by the resurrected Lord Jesus to go make Jesus known to the ends of the earth. People become Christians from all over the known world. Chapters 1 through 7 deal with the the events beginning in Jerusalem, where Jesus ascends and sends his promised Holy Spirit, then commissions his church from Jerusalem to the ends of the earth. In chapters 8 through 11, we see the mission begins to expand into the surrounding regions of Judea and Samaria, and a bunch of unlikely characters are welcomed into the fellowship of the church. Then chapters 13 and 14 highlight Paul's first missionary journey, the first intentional sending of missionaries to the nations. And in chapter 15, all of this kind of comes to a head. It's where we've been for the last several weeks, where we see the story of the Jerusalem Council, which is, it's hard to overstate how monumental the events of the Jerusalem Council were. The question in chapter 15 is in large part a response to the events of chapters 8, 9, 10, 11, 12, 13, and 14 leading up to it. The question is this, are Gentiles, non-Jews, to be circumcised and, to, and, and follow the Jewish law in order to become Christians? We said that was a reasonable question, right? Because Jesus is Jewish. He's the Jewish Messiah. He's come in accordance with the Jewish scriptures. How Jewish were these Gentiles to become? This is a legitimate issue to untangle. And, you know, looking at it from our seat on the bus, 
thousands of years later, we forget how dicey and difficult this question was for the early Christians. And what was the answer at the Jerusalem Council regarding, this, regarding circumcision? Well, the Spirit leads them to, the answer, to, to answer this with a resounding no. Salvation is a free gift of grace. You don't have to be circumcised to be welcomed in. And you can almost see the relief on the faces of the Christians in Antioch when they're given the letter that informs them it is by grace through faith we're saved alone. And then last Sunday, we also saw that the very thing Martin Luther points out above, that though free, Christians are constrained to love, that, that, that is the call on the life of the Christian. The law of love expressed in this willingness to play ball with Jewish brothers and sisters, to lay aside rights so that, so that fellowship could exist between the Jewish brothers, the Jewish sisters, and these Gentiles. Just as we sang just a few moments ago, O grace, uh, uh, O to grace, how great a debtor. The grace Jesus shows us changes the way we relate to him, but also changes the way that we relate to one another. Now this morning, we begin Paul's second missionary journey. We see two stories here, one which offers a kind of acknowledgement of the reality of conflict and the other which shows the law of love in action once more. So let's read, starting in Acts chapter 15, verse 36. After some days, Paul said to Barnabas, Let us return and visit the brothers in every city where we proclaim the word of the Lord and see how they are. Verse 36 marks a transition in the narrative, now focusing on the second missionary journey through Acts 18. Paul and Barnabas have camped out at Antioch for some time doing ministry. Now they've decided to revisit their stops. Revisit their stops that they made on the first missionary journey to check in on friends. Remember Bill? How's Bill doing? How's Jack? How's Jane? I wonder how they're doing. They go to encourage these brothers and sisters to head off any false teachers and likely to relay the Jerusalem Council's decision regarding circumcision. But watch what happens. Barnabas wants to get the band back together and Paul has his doubts. Verse 37. Now Barnabas wanted to take with him John, called Mark, but Paul thought best not to take with him one who had withdrawn from them in Pamphylia and had not gone with them to the work. You might remember this. It was very much in passing several chapters ago, uh, but we're actually told that Mark, who's at that time with Paul and Barnabas on that first missionary journey, actually dips out on Paul and Barnabas in Acts chapter 13, verse 13. We're not told why, just that he leaves them and he returns to Jerusalem. And it could be a number of different things that leads to this. He's homesick, or the journey has been too tough up to this point, or he's intimidated by what's ahead, or any of those things. And if I'm honest, I can very much relate to John Mark here. I don't travel well. I like to have arrived at my destination. I don't like to travel. I don't like the area between point A and point B. All I see is motion sickness. And so I'm sympathetic to John Mark. You know, maybe that's the case for him. He, he doesn't travel well. And so he was having a hard time and went back home in chapter 13. But in 15, Acts chapter 15, Barnabas wants to give Mark another opportunity. And it's something that is very on-brand for Barnabas, isn't it? Based on what we've been told about Barnabas, this seems very consistent with the character that he's already been portrayed as in, in the book of Acts. We're told earlier in Acts that he's an encourager. That's what his name Barnabas means. And he's consistently been one who goes to bat for people. You think back to Acts chapter 9 when Paul is just converted, and the Jerusalem church is understandably nervous about welcoming Paul in. You know, They, they know who Paul is. They know Paul's reputation. And who's the one that goes to bat for Paul? Who vouches for the legitimacy of Paul's conversion? It's Barnabas. And here again, Barnabas is doing very Barnabasy things. He says we should give John Mark another opportunity. However, Paul disagrees. Verse 39 tells us that there arose a sharp disagreement. Maybe Paul remembers how tough it was to go from three to two on that first missionary journey. How hard it was to lose Mark, and he's afraid that Mark is just going to dip on them once again. Maybe Paul knows these hardships. Maybe he's thinking about the hardships. It's not the right time. He's, he's not the right guy. Paul thinks it's not... Uh, it's not best to bring Mark on the journey again. And again, this is on brand for Paul, isn't it? I mean, just as Barnabas's actions were on brand for Barnabas, maybe this is on brand for Paul as well. 
Maybe it's just me, but Paul seems to be kind of intense. He's kind of an extreme character in the scriptures. I mean, you have to be extreme to do some of the things that he did, right? Being stoned and left for dead and then going back into the city for more, proceeding to teach and how we enter the kingdom through tribulation. In fact, we need people with sensibilities like Barnabas, and we need people with sensibilities like Paul, don't we? God gifts his church with different personalities, and it's a good thing. And You know, maybe one kind of takeaway or lesson from this passage could be the need for differing personalities and perspectives, the multiplicity of gifts within the church. So here these two men kind of arrive at this crossroads over what to do with John Mark. Barnabas wants to give Mark another shot. Paul thinks it's too risky. The journey is too hard for him. It's going to set him back. And I remember taking a language class in college. My professor would often say about languages, these are the rules except when they're not. If you think about English for a second, that's that's the case a lot with with, with a, the way that a lot of our words function, right? It's like these are the rules, except when they're not. The ending, O U G H, sounds like uff in the words tough and rough, but it sounds like oo and through and o and thorough and cookie dough. These are the rules, except when they're not. That's for me. That's kind of become a go-to way of thinking about life. That there's often issues that require some finesse or feel or savvy or wisdom issues that aren't super clear-cut doesn't always follow the rules maybe you've maybe you've been in the position where you found yourself disagreeing with good people over wisdom issues over these issues that require finesse you think about this situation this way you say i think about i think this is the wisest course of action while the other person thinks about the situation this way and they say i think this is the wisest course of action i think it's uff you think it's zoo This isn't a sin issue. It's not right or wrong, per se. It's different takes on what's best. It's a wisdom issue. It's amazing how often life requires that kind of decision-making, isn't it? What's best next? Or even sometimes, what's the least terrible of the options? What would wisdom have us to do? What we see here is a wisdom issue with Paul and Barnabas. Paul thinks this is the best mode of operation. Barnabas thinks this. Now, when you you hear me say that, that there's there's such a thing as wisdom issues... Don't think I'm saying that wisdom issues are therefore unimportant. Just because it's not a sin issue per se, it's not a question of right and wrong per se, that it's therefore bottom shelf. Don't hear me saying it's a kind of live and let live non-issue. Just because it's a wisdom issue doesn't, doesn't rise to the level of right and wrong, it's not relegated to bottom tier. Sometimes wisdom issues result in conflict, like what's pictured here between Paul and Barnabas. In fact, sometimes wisdom issues can actually be reason enough to part ways. Acts 15.39 again. And there arose a sharp disagreement, so that they separated from each other. Barnabas took Mark with him and sailed away to Cyprus, but Paul chose Silas and departed, having been commended by the brothers to the grace of the Lord. And he went through Syria and Cilicia, strengthening the churches. The disagreement is sharp. It seems to imply pretty heated, doesn't it? These guys disagree and part ways. And as you read this, I wonder what you think of that. Maybe reading this even for the first time. Is this a tragedy? Is this a failure? You read that and you say, this is very on brand for Christians. Christians are always fighting. Why can't we all just get along? If only the church were unified. You know, sometimes said that Christians should just be unified, that the greatest tragedy in the world is Christian disunity, something I'm very sympathetic to. Or maybe you hear this morning, you're not a Christian, you'd say that the biggest hurdle to your belief is seeing how nasty Christians have been to one another. And again, I say, I, I get that. But sometimes, something that's recognized even in Acts is that sometimes they're just differences. Differences of convictions, different ministry models, different wisdom issues. Sometimes they're significant enough to part ways, like Paul and Barnabas. Now, would these guys still regard each other as Christians? 
10,000%, I would say so. But sometimes partnership just isn't realistic. Do you remember studying Ecclesiastes? What was that H word that we used over and over again, that's used in Ecclesiastes over and over again? We live in the land of hevel, right? You can't just, you can't always get things perfectly straight. There's going to be different perspectives and different readings of passages and different ministry models and different opinions on what's wise. That's not to say these issues are negligible or unimportant, not at all. That's not to say someone going separate ways is not regrettable, because it is. But sometimes, two folks, two good folks, just have to part ways, and that's reality. Is it good? Is it bad? Eh, I don't know. But it's life, isn't it? To me, this passage is a kind of minor key encouragement about the reality of life and complexity of ministry. Of course, this was regrettable. But sometimes you make judgment calls, you trust what you think the Spirit is leading you to do, and you hope for the best. Doesn't mean it has to be the end of the story either. Uh, you know who this Mark that they're uh, that these two guys are disagreeing about? You know who this Mark turns out to be? If you flip over sixty something pages to the left, what do you find there? The Gospel according to who? To Mark. So this guy wasn't a total disaster, right? I mean, what's more, Paul speaks of Mark once again in Second Timothy, asking for him, calling him a useful partner in ministry. So if there was a rift in their relationship, it does become mended eventually at some point. I mean, for the earliest Christians, you have to wonder how this split would have affected them. The Christmas Christ, uh, Christian excuse me, movement is still only a decade or so old at this point, and it's still very susceptible and vulnerable. They may have felt like the parting of these two major leaders would have been treacherous for the early church, but was it? Well, no. I mean, it seems like the Lord still uses both parties. The result is two missions now, not just one. It seems the Lord uses even this conflict in the advance of the gospel. So there's encouragement here regarding the reality of things this side of eternity. Conflict will happen. I know some of us have seen some really nasty stuff. I know I have, but maybe it's not the end of the world. Maybe wisdom sends you this way and sends me this way, and we say, love you, brother, love you, sister. I entrust you to the Lord as we go separate ways. Now let me speak specifically to the folks in the the room for a second. One thing that we often say is that this room isn't always going to look the way that it does this morning. People are going to come and go. People will move on. And to be really clear, I hate that. I want us to be a big, happy, happy family forever. I always joke at members' meetings that I feel like Grandma does at Christmas, just so happy to have all of her little ducklings in a room together. But that's probably not going to happen. There's, there may come a day when you need to break partnership with us at Ridgewood. Maybe you've been around uh, Ridgewood for a while, but you're just not sold on how we do things. You know what? Maybe that's okay. Our philosophy of ministry isn't for you. You have different convictions, different philosophical takes on different things. Our responsive readings freak you out. You don't like that we don't do altar calls on Sunday. You think community groups are weird and you prefer Sunday school. And we can disagree. And yes, we can disagree and think the other has misjudged the situation. And we can also try and persuade one another. But at the end of the day, sometimes we just have to part ways. Is this ideal? Eh. You know what I mean? Eh. But is it reality? Yes. Is it the end of the world? Not at all. Maybe you're a member here at Ridgewood now. There may come a time when you need to move on from Ridgewood. And listen, we want want to take membership very seriously. We want to push back against church consumerism and live differently, deeply in each other's lives. But Acts 15, right? Things won't always be hunky-dory. There could be good reasons to move on for both parties. We want to pastor well and wisely, but but we're going to blow it on occasion. And you know what? You're going to blow it too. We will get stuff wrong, and you will get stuff wrong. Again, I'm not talking about sin, but disagreements on direction or vision or big decisions or what we deem to be wise. And disagreeing is just reality, isn't it? 
I'm, I'm going to put this up on the screen for us. I thought this was helpful. It comes from Pastor Mark Dever in Washington, D.C. He speaks to how we can leave a church well, navigating these, these kind of issues with grace. He gives six steps before you leave, before you decide to leave, rather. First, he says, pray. Pray. Soak the decision to leave your church in prayer. Secondly, he says, let your current pastor know about your thinking before you move to another church or make your decision to relocate to another city. Ask for his counsel. Invite the pastor's feedback into whether or not you should move on. Three, weigh your motives. Is your desire to leave because of sinful personal conflict or disappointment? If it's because of doctrinal reasons, are, there, are, are these doctrinal reasons significant? Four, do everything within your power to reconcile any broken relationships. Five, be sure to consider all the evidences of graces you've seen in the church's life, places where God's work is evident. If you cannot see any evidences of graces, you might want to examine your own heart once more. There, once more. There he cites Matthew 7, verses 3 through 5. Six, be humble. Recognize you don't have all the facts and assess people and circumstances charitably. Give them the benefit of the doubt. And then he provides these three bits of instruction if you decide to go. First, he says, don't divide the body. Secondly, take the utmost care not to sow discontent even among your closest friends. Remember, you don't want anything to hinder their growth and grace in this church. Deny any desire to gossip, sometimes referred to as venting or saying how you feel. Three, pray for and bless the congregation and its leadership. Look for ways of doing this practically. If there has been hurt, then forgive, even as you have been forgiven. I thought that was very helpful. And it makes me hopeful that even in the event of our parting of ways, it can be flavored by love. More on that in a second. Now, Paul and Barnabas go separate ways. And the narrative of Acts moving forward is all Paul. Acts 16, verse 1. Paul came also to Derby and to Lystra. A disciple was there named Timothy, the son of a Jewish woman who was a believer. But his father was a Greek. He was well spoken of by the brothers at Lystra and Iconium. Now we're introduced to Timothy. He's a young man, well thought of at Lystra and Iconium, but his heritage is problematic. He's born to a devout Jewish mother and a Greek father. He was apparently raised in the Jewish faith. He was a Gentile God-fearer based on the opening of 1 Timothy 1, and it seems Timothy converted to Christianity in Paul's first go-round, his first missionary journey several chapters ago. By the way, one of the things I love about Paul and Barnabas is how they're just stallions when it comes to identifying and raising up these young guys. That's the source of the earlier dispute, which of the protégés to bring along. And that's instructive for us, I think, about the kind of priority we should have on bringing young men and giving them opportunities and leadership. So Timothy, first mentioned here, actually goes on to be an influential leader uh, within the early church. He, he becomes the pastor at the church at Ephesus, a church Paul plants. There's two books of the Bible bearing Timothy's name, First and Second Timothy. Paul writes letters and gives Timothy instructions on how to pastor well. Paul also refers to Timothy as a son in the ministry, having developed a deep kind of love for Timothy. So Paul recruits him, and he welcomes him into the mission. And then watch this. This is Acts chapter 16, verse 3. Paul, Paul wanted Timothy to accompany him, and he took him and circumcised him based off the Jews who were in those places. For they all knew that his father was a Greek. And they went on their way through the cities. They delivered to them for observance the decisions that had been reached by the apostles and elders who were in Jerusalem. So the churches were strengthened in the faith, and they increased in numbers daily. Wait a second. So Paul has Timothy circumcised as Paul is delivering the message that circumcision wasn't necessary? What's going on here? He brings Timothy on this mission, this mission which includes the good news telling these cities the good news that you don't have to be circumcised to be saved, and then he circumcises Timothy? Interestingly enough, this is actually different than what Paul chooses to do with another one of his protégés, Titus. In Galatians 2, Paul tells us that 
ain't no way is he going to circumcise Titus. So is Paul being inconsistent here? Is he confused that he changed his mind? What's going on here? Well, think about Paul's strategy. He always goes first to synagogues whenever he goes to a new city. To the Jew first and then to the Gentile. Timothy is the son of a Greek father and Jewish mother. This was a scandalous mixing of heritage and not permissible according to Jewish law. Jews are not to intermarry. And so this would have been considered a non-legal marriage in Jewish tradition, and Timothy would have retained his mother's Jewishness and should have been circumcised. So Paul is recognizing how scandalous Timothy's heritage was, and in order to eliminate any additional stumbling blocks, he circumcises Timothy. Now let's say you could ask Paul, okay, Paul, does one have to be circumcised to get saved? His response would be, uh-uh, ain't no way. Not in a million years. It is by grace through faith alone. You read through Galatians and Paul gets pretty PG-13 when he starts thinking about those who would demand circumcision for salvation. The supremacy and glory of the gospel is that Jesus' blood is enough to save you. Period. Triple stamp that double stamp. We are saved by grace through faith. It is sheer gift, freely given. But here, in this instance, in love and in service of advancing the gospel, will Timothy be circumcised? Yes. In 1 Corinthians 9, Paul describes his reasoning. He says, For though I am free from all, I have made myself a servant to all, that I might win more of them. To the Jews I became as a Jew in order to win Jews. To those under the law I became as one under the law, though not being myself under the law, that I might win those under the law. To those outside the law I became as one outside the law, not being outside the law of God, but under the law of Christ, that I might win those outside the law. To the weak I became weak, that I might win the weak. I have become all things to all people, that by all means I might save some. I do it all for the sake of the gospel, that I may share with them in its blessing. You see what Paul is saying here is that he's willing to embrace the law, to circumcise Timothy in this instance, for the sake of those under the law, the Jews. The same with the Gentiles. He's willing to come up under their customs inasmuch as it's fitting for a follower of Christ. He's willing to embrace their customs to win them to Jesus. Paul's passion for the gospel and His love for brothers and sisters are behind his willingness to bend and flex on certain cultural issues. I'm free from all, yet slave to all. You see? Don Carson, a New Testament scholar, he says it like this. He says, Paul refuses to circumcise his Titus, even when it was demanded by many in the Jerusalem crowd. Not because it didn't matter to them, but because it mattered so much that if he acquiesced, he would have been giving the impression that faith in Jesus is not enough for salvation. One has to become a Jew first before one can become a Christian. That would jeopardize the exclusive sufficiency of Jesus. Carson says that for Paul, Jesus plus circumcision equals nothing. That's an affront to the gospel. Carson continues. He says, to create a contemporary analogy, if I'm called to preach the gospel among a lot of people who are cultural teetotalers, I'll give up alcohol for the sake of the gospel. But if they start saying you cannot be Christian and drink alcohol, I'll reply, pass the port. Paul is flexible and therefore prepared to circumcise Timothy when the exclusive sufficiency of Christ is not at stake and when a little cultural accommodation will advance the gospel. He is rigidly inflexible and therefore refuses to circumcise Titus when people are saying that Gentiles must be circumcised and become Jews to accept the Jewish Messiah. If this is a question of salvation, no sir, we forgo the circumcision. I am free. But if this is a way to bear a brother's burden to enable the gospel to go forward, I am a slave. So here's here's what I want us to take from this passage. First, we've been given a dose of reality. The parting ways over legitimate things, again, not sin, but judgment calls, is a regrettable feature of life, this side of the fall and this side of new creation. Will some of you leave? Yes. 
Will some of you disagree? Yes. But speaking from my heart, what do I want us to be? I want us to be a church that pushes against church consumerism and selfishness with all our might. We hope every soul here and more sticks around. We hope to press towards unity in all things, not jumping ship when things are uncomfortable. I want us to love. I mean, I joked with our community group this week that we celebrate Paul's selflessness in the story, but man, Timothy is the one that's making the sacrifice here, right? I mean, in all seriousness, could Timothy be an example for us? I mean, living out the literal pain of laying aside his freedom for his brothers and for the mission. May we be constrained by the love of Jesus to love each other, really seeing our brothers and sisters and willingly laying our lives down for them in love like Jesus. What could this look like for you? How could you live a counter-cultural, generous, hospitable, and accommodating life for your brothers and sisters? And even if we do need to part ways, could we do it counter-culturally, graciously, benefit of the doubtingly, free of passive aggressiveness, and free from that martyr syndrome we so like to bear? We always take time to pray in response to the sermon and the scriptures that have just been read, and here's how I'm going to call us to respond this morning. If you're here this morning and you're not a Christian, I invite you to know the God of the gospel. He offers this free gift of grace, salvation through faith alone. It's not about what you've done or what you could do. It's about receiving this offer of pardon with belief. Then he frees you from yourself and joyfully binds you to others to give your life to them. Would you pray? Would you ask God, show me, open my eyes? Would you help me to understand? To the Christian, I would ask you to pray this. Would you pray, God, show me where you want me to lay down my life for a brother or sister. If you're feeling really bold, ask him to provide opportunities to lay your life down for your brother or sister. As those completely free, saved by free grace, ask that God would enslave you to fellow believers for his namesake. Thanks for listening. I hope this was helpful. Again, you know, not the format that this was originally delivered, uh, but wanted to provide this nonetheless. Blessings to you. Thanks for listening.